This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash richtakeonsports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is Rich Take on Sports, and welcome, everyone. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. And it's time for another episode, and this is episode number 24. I know things are heating up for college football, and the NFL preseason has started, but this episode, we're jumping back into college basketball as our guest is the men's head basketball coach for Clemson University, and that's Brad Brunell. I know some of you don't know my complete story if you've missed any of the other episodes, but basketball that was my first love in terms of sports. And, you know, coaching was my dream. I tried to walk on at Clemson in 1989, and it just happened to be the same year that Clemson wins the ACC regular season title. So we're loaded with talent. I'm talking two future first round NBA selections with Eldon Campbell and Dale Davis. So needless to say, my heart just wasn't enough to overcome my talent deficiencies. But head coach Cliff Ellis at the time, he let me stay on the team as a student manager because I talked to him about my dream of coaching one day and, you know, I wanted to be a college basketball coach. And I was fortunate enough that he allowed me to stay on as a student manager. And then I actually got to coach in college, uh, Division One for three years, one year at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Teaneck, New Jersey, and two years at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore in Princess Anne, Maryland, which is not too far from Ocean City, Maryland. So I was living out my dream as a Division One assistant coach, but at the end of the day, our staff at Maryland Eastern Shore gets fired in 1996. And, you know, the next thing I know, it's 2017 and I never got back into coaching, but I did start this podcast. So this is always exciting for me to talk about basketball. And so just being able to spend time with Coach Brunel was very exciting. And I'm looking forward to sharing this episode. But before we get to the Rich Spotlight, let me remind everyone that you can visit our website, richtakeonsports.com. And there you can subscribe through Apple Podcast, Google Play, or Stitcher. So whichever platform you prefer, and you'll also be able to find any of the other previous episodes. And you can also follow through Twitter at Rich Take Sports. So now that we've cleared up some of the housekeeping items, let's move on into the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. 
In episode 24, we welcome in Brad Burnell, who enters in his eighth season leading the Clemson Tigers men's basketball team as their head coach. Now, he's led the Tigers to the 2011 NCAA tournament and two NIT appearances where the Tigers reached the NIT semifinals in the 2013 and 2014 season. The 2017 season will be Coach Brunell's 16th season as a head coach with stops at UNC Wilmington and Wright State, where he took both teams to the NCAA tournament and was also named Conference Coach of the Year at each school. Now, his dad was a basketball coach, so during our time, one of the things that I wanted to understand first and foremost a little bit better was how that affected him becoming involved in sports. Well... Uh, blessed in that I was, uh, you know, raised by a uh, father who was a high school basketball coach. And uh, certainly growing up in southern Indiana, um, you develop a, a passion for the sport of basketball uh, probably as quickly as anywhere. And uh, I was lucky enough to just be able to follow my dad uh, all over. And, and I used to tag along to practices at as long as I can remember, I used to go with him to scout other high school games and, you know, try to keep a shot chart or do something to make myself like I was uh, important. Um, you know, basketball was something and re really all sports at a young age were something I just had a great passion to and took to and um, did pretty well with. And, and uh, you know, my dad coached some other sports. He's a soccer coach. You know, he, he coached golf. Um, and so I, I was kind of my doors were open to a lot of different things. Uh, ironically, the one thing that, that I never really played and I kind of regret a little bit was I never played football. Uh, football where we were when we were kind of growing up in southern Indiana at the time wasn't nearly what it is here. And uh, there were some people that played, but, um, you know, a lot of people played soccer. Soccer was really big. And so I played a lot of soccer growing up as well. Um, baseball, basketball. Uh, but uh, so I was always into something uh, with a ball. And, uh, you know, out in the yard with, with neighbors and doing everything. And then, you know, at about six years old, started playing on teams. And uh, being around the game as much as I was with my father uh, in terms of basketball, uh, just being able to go to all these practices, go watch these uh, scouting trips with my dad, certainly basketball became something that I was certainly, you know, driven towards uh, pretty early. Okay. And it was that at an early age that you realized that, hey, I want to, play basketball beyond high yeah, school? Yeah, everybody, everybody at a young age wants to play as long as they can play and play in the NBA and all those dreams that, that you have. And, and uh, you know, I was, a, I was a good high school player. I was a very late bloomer. Um, you know, I, I was – it's almost embarrassing. I was not quite 6'2 and about 160 pounds, 62 pounds coming out of high school. And so I didn't have too many people beating down my door. Uh, even though I was a guy that, you know, had a good skill level and knew the game and, and could make some shots. But um, but it was certainly something that, that, you know, I'd been around since I was six. And, you know, because of that, I, I was further along in my understanding of how to play and, and to do things. And, you know, I had a had a really good high school coach my senior year, Gerald Van Devender. Uh, I, ironically, I played with a young man by the name of Calvert Chaney, who's the Big Ten all-time leading scorer at, at Indiana. Uh, he was a sophomore when I was a senior. Okay. And uh, so I got to see real quickly when I was a senior, and, and he was a sophomore at about 6'4", and you know, he was probably only about 175, 180 at the time. But okay. you know, quickly coming back and watching him, even after I went to college and seeing him emerge, grow to 6'6", and 
athletically very gifted and and uh, you quickly realize that that's what an NBA player and a and a high major Division one player look like and, and I didn't look like that so <laughs> uh, I played Division three basketball and had a great experience um, played for a, a coach by the name of Royce Waltman who was an assistant for coach Knight at Indiana yeah. um, coach Bender who's on staff with us here was actually uh, the young cool assistant at the time. Uh, and was, was great. And, you know, really I was pushed, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, we had great teams and, and played for a division three national championship, uh, one year, but I, I was really, you know, blessed because I was around a really good coach. Okay. Uh, I was around my dad and learned some things that way. I played for a good high school coach, especially my senior year. Uh, and I got good coaching and, and I worked summer camps, uh, most summers okay. um, when I was in college to try to, uh, again, kind of, you know, whet my appetite for my passion for basketball and to meet more people and to open doors for later. And Jim Cruz was the coach at the University of Evansville at the time where I was from in Indiana and uh, had a very good program there, Division One program. And so I'd come back and occasionally play with their guys in the summer and, and work their camps and, yeah. uh, you know, really got to got to learn the game the right way of coaching the game uh, at a young age. And that really helped me early in my coaching career. Yeah. So at a young age, when you were playing, was your dad, your coach? Also? No, that's ironic. Okay, no, my yeah. dad got out of it. Um, when I was in middle school, uh, and so I didn't play for my father. Uh, I actually was at a different high school altogether. We actually, he was in a different County, uh, teaching. And, uh, and so I, I was in, in more of the, the city of Evansville and he was in the County kind of next to it. Um, so, uh, but that was good because it allowed him the chance to come see me play mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And he kind of, I think at that point he'd, he'd coached for several years and, and just kind of at that point, I think he, he thought, you know, I, I don't want to move. We're in a good situation. He actually liked what he was teaching. He was, a, he was a science teacher and did a bunch of stuff there. And so he kind of just, uh, gave into coaching a little bit in order to, to kind of watch me play. And so he, he was at all our games and followed me, you know, throughout my career. And, and that was a lot of fun that way. Now, after you graduate from DePaul and yeah. you're getting into coaching, yeah. so share that journey. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's getting into coaching, as you know, is extremely difficult. You have to be fortunate. Um, you know, certainly you have to be prepared uh, for when an opportunity arises and you got to, you know, the luck comes into it. But I was going to be a, a graduate assistant at Division Three DePaul where I played for my college coach. I actually had started summer classes uh, the summer after I graduated. And uh, at middle of the summer, Coach Cruz at Evansville and Coach Waltman, my, my college coach, were good friends. And Coach Cruz called Coach Waltman and said, hey, I, I have a graduate assistant spot open um, here, and I'd like to hire Brad. He knew me from working camps and things. Are you okay with that? And Coach Waltman said, "Yeah, absolutely." And and he needs to he needs to go go work for somebody different than he played for. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the good news was I I went and took the job at Evansville. lived lived at home with my parents. Um, the bad news was was Coach Cruz told me there's a good chance the NCAA is going to abolish the graduate assistant spot. And so this may just be a one year deal. And I said, "Well, that's okay, Coach. I'm you know." this is what I need to do professionally. I'm going to do it. And, uh, so I went down there and, and worked my tail off probably, you know, 
65, 70 hours a week, um, doing about everything you could imagine, uh, and tried to take a couple classes in the meantime. And that was challenging because that was kind of the part-time, the, the, the part, part-time job. Uh, but had an unbelievable experience, learned a great deal. We had a great season, went to the NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ironically in the spring, I, as coach Cruz said, uh, my job was, uh, abolished. And so we didn't have GAs. And so at the division one level, and so I was out of work. And so I learned that the coaching gig could be tough. Ironically, uh, my college coach had hired another one of my teammates after I left, but that guy, after one year of coaching, uh, didn't feel like coaching anymore when he realized okay. it was 65 hour weeks. Uh, so he got out of it and my college coach took a job at the university of Indianapolis, a division two job. Uh, and so he called me and the assistant that was there, uh, called me and they both said, Hey, we, you know, we want you here. And, uh, so then I went to the, the university of Indianapolis. The good news was they were going to pay for my master's. The bad news is that there was no stipend. There was no money to live. There was no money for food. There was, you just had to figure it out. And so, um, you know, you decide real quickly that you want to coach. And, uh, and so I moved to the university of Indianapolis. I lived with my assistant, uh, in a really bad apartment (laughs) that, uh, I think was $400 a month. And he told me, Hey, I'll do you a big favor because he wasn't making very much money either. He goes, I'll pay two fifty. You only pay one fifty, and uh, so that was like the big sell to like make me come uh, up there and work with them. And so you got a nice discount. Uh, I got a yeah, I got a huge yeah. discount. Uh, and but it was great because when you go to Division two, and this is the one thing about small college that's different than you know being at a high major is there's the head coach, there's one assistant, and then there was the GA. And so I did everything, okay. you name it. I, I did the laundry. I did academic work with our with our guys. I traveled and recruited. I did scouting. I worked with the perimeter players. Um, you know, the staff meetings were were small, and so there was always accountability uh, right away. And my my coach was tough. He was Coach Waltman was demanding, very demanding. And you know what I learned later at the time. You know, at the time I knew it was hard, and it was like this guy's. You know, does he realize all that I'm doing and not getting anything out of it? Um, other than experience and, uh, you, you learn quickly whether you really want to coach. I was going to ask you that. When was it that you realized that you did want to coach? Was that early on in high school? And then now I I thought I would in, in high school, but I really, you know, growing up in Indiana, I really thought that I would just be a high school teacher and coach. And so I student taught, you know, history. I was a history major. Uh, I thought I would you know, teach a couple of history classes and coach high school basketball. And that would be a pretty big deal in Indiana if you could try to play for state championships and, you know, work your way up from the small town teams to the, the bigger schools and do all that. That was a, that was pretty prestigious back there. And, uh, you know, and competitive, to be honest with you, hard to get good jobs, uh, to be a basketball coach, to get a head coaching job was, was tough in Indiana. And, uh, but once I got my taste of college and spent that year at, the University of Evansville is my first year GA. Then I kind of knew, hey, wait a minute. Now, maybe you need to try for the college deal. You know, at least look at it. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's really difficult. So I. But I, even as you're now at the Division Two and you're putting in these hours, did you feel. We got to remember, I'm like, still a graduate assistant. Yeah, you're like, so I'm, I'm still really, loving this. Yeah, I love it. No, I never didn't love any part of it. It was. It was hard work and it was unbelievable, but, you know, I just love being around the game. The competitor in me wanted to, 
you know, still wanted to try to win, be competitive. I mean, we had unbelievable teams. Bruce Pearl actually was coaching at University of Southern Indiana, uh, Division II, uh, in my hometown of Evansville. Uh, there were a couple other guys that were Division One that became Division One coaches that were coaching in that league. It was arguably the best Division Two league in the country, uh, and so it was it was high level basketball. There was great coaching going on. There was really good players, talented guys that could that could make plays and do a lot of things. And so you were challenged as a coach uh, in every way, shape, and form. And and we took over a tough situation, and coach ended up turning it around to to becoming a Division Two power and. But it was hard, and uh, you know it was great. After my first year as a GA there, most most graduate assistants, you're a GA for two years. But when I was at Evansville, I think I only took like 12 hours. Um, uh, you know, maybe it was nine. Even I can't even remember. It was it was not very many though. It was I was so much doing basketball that there was no way to like really load up on class and. Coach Cruz didn't really check on my classes or like, hey, you know, he wasn't too concerned about me getting my master's. It was kind of just – and Coach Wallman wasn't much different. It was kind of left to you to figure it out. And uh, so I ended up being a GA for three years. I was a, a, a GA at, at the University of Indianapolis my second year. And it's a funny story. We did well. And, and the AD at the time came in and met with my coach, Coach Waltman, and said, hey, you know, that – Brad is here a lot, man. He really works at this. Like, this is like, we need to do something for him. And uh, coach was like, yeah, that'd be great. And so they gave me $2,000 to live on that second year. So I, I've been in college or out of, out, out of college three years. And I got $2,000 to my name that, you know, I'm trying to survive on. And uh, lots of, lots of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I'm, I'm a huge peanut butter and jelly guy, especially uh, growing up and, and trying to survive. And, uh, but you know what? Had a blast. And the interesting part of it is where you're really where the where the story changes for me a little bit is. So I finished my third year in coaching. I've, I've been a graduate assistant for three years, got my master's at the University of Indianapolis. Now what? Because now you got to do something. You know, your 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 GA is over. Uh, my full time assistant guy is still there. My coach is there. But what are you going to do? And well, I, at the same time, I proposed to my wife that year and we were getting married in the okay. spring in May. Um, I had no job and, uh, you know, she was my high school sweetheart. So she'd been in this battle for several years and knew what, uh, coaching was like. And so at the time I've got a master's and I've, I've student taught, I've done the whole deal. So I interviewed for a couple of head high school jobs to teach and coach small high school jobs. I interviewed at a couple small college jobs for assistance jobs and just couldn't, find a way to get lucky to get hired. As you know, most of the time it's who you know. And so I, they're just, my tree wasn't as big as I liked it to be because Coach Waltman, Coach Cruz were all kind of in the same tree. So we didn't have that many different guys. So it was hard. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I was back working Evansville summer camps again in July or June, I guess it was. And an assistant there by the name of Will Ray, who had just left and been at Loyola, was good friends but by, uh, with a guy by the name of Jerry Wainwright. Jerry Wainwright had been an assistant at Wake Forest yeah. and had just gotten the the job kind of late in July at UNC Wilmington. And he talked about he needed a guy to come be his restricted earnings coach. You know what that's like. You know, again, it's more work for not a lot of pay. Uh, and wasn't 100% sure who he wanted to hire. And Will Ray and, and Coach Cruz were people that Coach Wainwright knew pretty well and respected. And so he said, hey, well, you know, 
they gave him my name and he said, well, let me talk to him. And so they pulled me out of literally out of teaching stations one day and I go and have an hour conversation with coach Wainwright and it goes great. And he, uh, tells me to come down and interview. And so I take Paula down and we go interview and I got the job. And, uh, so that was a godsend for me and, and having the opportunity to, to break into division one, but it was, you know, that was a big change. We, we left the Midwest. I go to Wilmington, North Carolina, don't know a soul and take this job. And I'm actually, coaching basketball, not allowed to recruit, but, uh, I'm teaching classes, uh, in order to try to supplement my income and make, you know, a few extra thousand dollars. So Paul and I can, can live. And, uh, I did that for, for three years, uh, as a restricted earnings guy. Yeah. That, and I know that's, those are the lean years, right? Yeah. So that first (laughs) six years were real lean. Uh, I got student loans and, I got everything you can imagine, but you know what? I also have a lot of great memories. I had a lot of great yeah. times, coached a lot of really good players, great kids. Um, and I was doing what I loved. And so it, you don't know any better, you know, yeah. at that, at that time, if you're really doing something you're passionate about, you don't worry about any of the other things. And, uh, you know, my wife had gotten a job and so she was working really a couple jobs. Also she was doing some teaching, uh, and working at Pier One, and we were surviving and doing fine. And, um, you know, slowly but surely, where I was really blessed is because I was around the game and around my father, and then played for a great coach and Coach Waltman and worked for Coach Cruz and was around their summer camps. I really, I really learned how to teach the game the right way at a young age. And okay. so, what happened to me is when I got down to Wilmington, Coach Wainwright, the head coach, and I really didn't know each other. Uh, and he was taking these guys' word, and we spent time talking basketball, and then he watched me coach, and I'm, I, I made a big impact on the court. I really okay. was a guy that could help make players better. Uh, I was a guy that had a good grasp on coaching uh, from having been in the fire you know, for, for so many years. Um, and because I was a grad assistant at a small college, I did everything, and so I kind of knew how to do a lot of things pretty well, and, and because of that, I kind of rose through the coaching ranks very well. I got, you know, moved up to a full-time spot uh, for a couple of years and then got to be the associate head coach and then obviously became the head coach at 33 when Coach Wainwright moved on. So I was very blessed in that, you know, we got a, a good period of my life there where I got to stay. I actually was at Wilmington for 12 full years, eight years as the assistant, four years as the head coach. Yeah. But we and did so a lot of good So what was that like there. when you, you, know, you get the word that you're going to be – the head coach or you're in the yeah, remarkable the head coach. remark. Well, it, there was no, um, you know, it happened overnight. We took a team to the tournament, NCAA tournament, coach Wainwright, uh, had done it, uh, done some really good things with the program. Um, so there was no question he was going to be sought after, but it was kind of, people weren't sure if he would leave and he ended up deciding to go and he went to Richmond mm-hmm. and the next day they just kind of named me the coach. So they I did, wasn't, okay. there wasn't an interview process or anything like that. I didn't have to, suffer through that. I was, I'd been there eight years. I think the people had seen that, you know, had confidence in me that we could continue to do certain things. And because of the way things we had in place that the program was in a really good place and let's just, let's just move, move Brad over and see what we can do from there. And, and, uh, so I was very fortunate. That's, that's one of the things you don't, you know, again, to become a head coach at the division one level takes a lot of luck. And, uh, you know, it's all preparation meets opportunity. And mm-hmm. I think we were very prepared. We'd done some really good things. But I was also very fortunate to be given that chance. A lot of guys are in our business and work a long time and don't ever get the chance. And uh, so that was – I was very blessed. 
And, uh, you know, obviously it was an exciting time for me, but a lot of pressure because I'll never forget it was interesting and that I'm taking over from my boss and, you know, I go interview for, or not interview, but he, he's getting ready to leave and we're having the press conference. And it's kind of a weird situation that there was a joint press conference and that he was still there because he was a very beloved figure at, at Wilmington for what he did to resurrect the program. And, you know, we're celebrating him kind of everything he'd accomplished. And then he was leaving to go to Richmond and I was taking over. But there's a picture of his shadow on top of me in a press conference. Yeah. And they obviously put that on the front page of the newspaper the next day. And it was like as excited as I was to be the coach, there were some people that weren't sure that I could handle the job. And that, you know, basically there was an article written that anything less than the NCAA tournament, you know, is going to be the next season will be deemed a failure because we had some good players coming back off a tournament team. And so when that's your first head coaching job, that's you're dealing with a lot. At 33. That's and, right. Uh, and so did you feel that, you know, at a young age like that, you were, hey, I'm yeah, ready for this challenge. Yeah, though. absolutely. And I think I was more certain that I was ready because it wasn't, I wasn't taking a new job. I was, I already yeah. knew what I was getting myself into. Number one, I knew we had a good team coming back. Mm-hmm. I knew we had some really good players. And so I was comfortable with those guys because I knew what we had. I knew the league because I'd been in the league for eight years. And so I knew what was what I was competing against. Um, I knew the kind of support we had. I, I, I knew, you know, people on campus. So if there was an issue with anything, I knew who I could contact and what I needed. And so, you know, some of the scary things that you get when you take over a new job and you're, there's a lot of uncertainty, some of those things I didn't have to worry about. But now, you know, again, how, how are the new player, players going to react to you moving from assistant to head coach? Mm-hmm. How are you going to react you know, you actually are calling the timeouts and making the, every adjustment and all those. But I, again, I was confident in all of that because that was kind of what I was known for and uh, what I was raised to do by uh, being by, you know, being raised in the game by some really good coaches. And my experiences and past experiences, what I learned from all the people that we've talked about, you know, earlier, I think prepared me and gave me the opportunity to be where I was. And so I was confident if I could hire a good staff that we would be successful and Fortunately, we were. And you were. And so you had the success. Um, but then I imagine with that success, then you start getting sought after. And yeah, describe you know what? that. Yeah, it wasn't really that as much as um, it, it wasn't as easy as as it seemed. Uh, okay. The first year uh, we had two really good senior players. Uh, one might have been the best player in the school's history. Uh, by the name of Brett Blizzard coming back. And so that team did, in fact, go to the tournament, and we won the league, won the tournament. Um, well, that's that's the year where we lost on the last second shot by Maryland on the 35-footer that Drew Nicholas hit at the buzzer to beat us in the first round of the tournament. So I that do was, remember that. That was a uh, you know, crushing blow uh, in a very difficult game. But uh, once that group left, we, we took a step back, and we didn't quite have – as much depth and talent as, and most people knew that that was probably going to happen a little bit. And so we had, we had a fifth, a 500 season, I think. And then we kind of had a, got a couple of good players and got it back up to 19 wins, I think that third year. And then we were kind of back into a position where some of those younger guys that we had played that, that year before were older. And so that fourth year we had a chance to have another really good team and we ended up having a really good team again. And, um, won the league and, and 
uh, won the conference tournament and went back to the NCAAs. And, but at the same time, we had some administrative changes. We, we changed some president, we changed, a, uh, an athletic director. And there were some things going on within the university and in my situation with basketball that had changed. And so I was really put in a, a little bit of a difficult situation, a crossroads of whether you stay at Wilmington where you know some things aren't as good as they'd been and, and some things were not going the way that you'd hoped they would go and some people on your staff and others and yourself were not being treated as fairly. Um, okay. And so, you know, I made a difficult, very, very, probably the hardest decision I've made in my life in, in all honesty to leave because I'd been there 12 years and my daughters had both been born there. My wife had great affinity for the place. Her parents had actually moved there. Uh, and so now at 37, we still have, you know, a good situation going. Uh, and I'm really not at that time, even though I'd been to a couple NCAA tournaments, I wasn't, I wasn't a guy that played high major division one basketball. I didn't work at North Carolina or Duke or Indiana or somewhere like that, where I had this great pedigree. Um, I was still kind of a, a guy who was earning respect in the business, but was still kind of somewhat under the radar in terms of the big, big schools looking at you. Um, and so I made a difficult decision that I was going to leave and uh, ended up looking at Ball State and Wright State um, universities and went and traveled to both schools on kind of a little three-day hiatus with my wife. And we visited with with uh, administrators at both schools and you know, got got offered jobs at both places. And, you know, Ball State is in back in Indiana where I'm from. Uh, Wright State was in Dayton, Ohio. So it was a chance to kind of go back to the Midwest. And it wasn't a popular decision in my household, uh, but I decided to make it and we chose Wright State. And so it was hard because we left a lot of great people in Wilmington. We left some really, really good kids and great players and, and great life experiences. But it was the right, it proved to be the right decision okay. for me professionally, as hard as it was to leave a great situation and to take on a new challenge. Cause yeah. I was taking on a situation where I hadn't been to the tournament in a long time. And I had had some difficulties, uh, recently, but had really good facilities and I thought good administration. And I think they had the passion that they wanted to win. Okay. And so, so were those some of the things that drew you more to Wright State versus Ball State? Yeah, a little bit. I just felt like uh, the administrative situation and uh, leadership and direction and passion for the program was okay. was probably a little further ahead. And, uh, and they had a, a really good practice facility that at the time was, was really good for mid-major basketball. And so in looking at all of it, um, just felt like that was the best decision and you know, proved to be a great decision, to be honest with you. And uh, we had uh, that first year, in fact, we uh, we had a, a really good guard coming back and some other guys that were good pieces and guys that were hungry and willing to be coached. And um, we kind of surprised everybody and, and we brought a couple of good guys with us, uh, good young players, and we ended up winning the Horizon League and uh, we beat Butler in the championship game and – and at the mid-major level in the Horizon League, you played your championship game. Uh, whoever won the regular season got to host the the playoffs. And so we 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 won the regular season, and so we got to host. And, and Wright State had a big old arena, about ten or 11,000. And so that night we get to the finals, and we're playing Butler. 
and uh, they're you know really really good and and uh, well coached. Brad Stevens is actually an assistant at the time, and uh, we play in front of a packed house, and okay. it's it is unbelievably electric environment, and we beat them in an unbelievable game to go to the NCAA tournament. Fans stormed the court, it, and so it was an unbelievable experience to kind of now kind of do something that was different. You know what I mean? I, I'd been the assistant and kind of got moved to head coach there. Now I had to go take over a job that, you know, needed some work. And we went to a tournament that first year. And then we didn't go to the tournament again, but we had three more years where we won 20 games or more. We played in the championship my last year, four years uh, later, against Brad Stevens' teams. And uh, he had Gordon Hayward and Shelvin Mack. He had two pros and, and another guy who was unbelievable inside and Brad's an unbelievable coach himself, obviously, and and uh, and they beat us in the finals at Butler uh, to go to the NCAA tournament, and they beat us like a drum. They were just they were too good. They beat us three times that year. We just and we were pretty good, but they were just on another level. Yeah, and uh, that, I think that's the year they went to the Final Four, and so like it was, it was unbelievable to watch them. Yeah, uh, what a run they had. Yeah, play at that level, and you knew when you were playing them like these guys are like just. They shouldn't be playing in the rising league. Okay. And uh, so it was it was fun. And, and uh, you know, that's when I got the job at, and interviewed for the job at Clemson. Yeah. So how did that come about, that call? And what was that like? Because now you're looking at an opportunity in the yeah. ACC, although it's not a predominantly basketball school. Yeah. It's yeah. a football school. Yeah. Uh, well, it was interesting. You know, I, at by that time, I'd become a little bit more of a name a little bit of a name in the profession mm-hmm. and done better. And so I'd, I'd, I'd gotten a chance to interview at a couple places. Um, and I got, eventually got a call by a search firm that was running the search for uh, the Clemson job. And, and uh, I remember telling my wife, you know, this would be unbelievable for us. And uh, didn't know Clemson inside and out, but had been there as an assistant coach uh, with Coach Wainwright. We actually came here and lost to uh, one of Coach Barnes's team. Terrell McIntyre was here, and he was awesome. And uh, they had they had a good team and, and uh, beat us uh, in a game. But obviously, by spending 12 years in Wilmington, one of the things that happened for me that was unbelievably fun is, you know, I grew up a Big Ten fan, rooted for the Hoosiers, Indiana all the way, watched Big Ten basketball, loved it kept my eye on, you know, ACC and other basketball for sure, just because I was a basketball fan. But when I moved to Wilmington and then got integrated into, you know, basketball and Tobacco Road with Duke and Carolina and mm-hmm. State and everything involved there, I quickly, you know, became a huge fan of the ACC and started watching all the ACC games and and got to see different things, Little John and – and uh to have the thought of being a part of either the Big Ten or the ACC would have been my pick for mm-hmm. ultimately where you want to be as a college coach. And so when the Clemson job opened, you know, I told my wife we might have a chance at this one. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, just came down with and met with Terry Don uh, Phillips, mm-hmm. uh, Billy D, and had a really good meeting and hit it off really well. And obviously tried to sell myself to them and, and – uh, you know, Oliver had done a really good job here and had uh, had had the program in a good place. Uh, certainly there were some things that were challenging, mm-hmm. um, but 
it was certainly a job that I wanted. And there was a lot of people, you know, there were a lot of people in the business that, you know, were, weren't sure if you should take it because Clemson had been known as a place where, you know, you're going to have a couple good years and then it's going to be really difficult. And there's challenges there because they only care about football and facilities mm-hmm. aren't as good and recruiting is unbelievably difficult. And, you know, it's, it's hard to go to Clemson and win doing things the right way. And, um, you know, so I was, some people try to talk me out of it. Uh, okay. but in, in all honesty, I just, it was, I wanted to coach in the ACC or the big 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really felt like, what Clemson stood for is, is what I was about. And I really enjoyed as the more research I did on the university mm-hmm. and talked to some other folks that had a, had a keen interest in Clemson, um, and knew about Clemson. And I'll never forget talking to Rick Barnes and Rick Barnes telling me that, you know, Clemson's a young man's job because of the time, energy and effort you have to put into it. It's, it's just, it's hard. Okay. And, uh, so he he said, you know, he was a guy that I I talked to about the job and got some really good advice from mm-hmm. and um, about it. But you know, he was, and he's been a guy that I still have talked to a, yeah. a good bit, um, you know, every now and then um, about some things going on here and stuff. So, uh, but yeah, it was I was ecstatic to get the job and and uh, to move my family here and to to coach in the ACC and to to coach at a great place like Clemson. And then now speaking of other coaches you talk to, who are some of the mentors in coaching that you look up to and you seek their advice? Well, I, yeah, you know, it's funny as you get into business. Um, I, I never really had any kind of relationship with anybody that, you know, is, is a wow factor person. You know, it wasn't, again, I never worked at Duke or Carolina or any of those kinds of places uh, certainly Jerry Wainwright, the guy that mm-hmm. I worked for at UNC Wilmington was somebody that I learned a great deal from, uh, my college coach, Royce Waltman, again, was, uh, unbelievably good coach and, and a guy who was, uh, learned as much as you can learn about the game from and coaching teams. And, you know, he was a very successful high school coach. He had been an assistant at Indiana where they won the national championship. He helped on the, in the background with the Olympic teams. he, you know, he just wanted to be a head coach, so he took the Division Three to Paw job. You know, did unbelievable things there, and then went to Division Two job. Did you know, got his team to number one in the country there, and then went to Indiana State, uh, the Division One level, and won the Missouri Valley with a very difficult job. Uh, you know, there and went to a couple tournaments. So he was certainly somebody that I that I talked to. Jim Cruz, the guy that I was a GA for uh, at the University of Evansville, was another guy that I leaned on. Uh, and then as you kind of get older, you develop friendships with some other people. Um, and you talk to, you know, a lot of different guys about different situations. You know, Brad Stevens and I have become friends because of competing against each other at at, uh, at Butler. And so we still keep in touch a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I talk to Mark Fox at Georgia a lot. We're mm-hmm. close, have become friends, having spent a lot of time together. Um, there's, you know, there's other guys – Jeff Newbauer is a coach at uh, Fordham University now. He was at Eastern Kentucky when I was at Wright State, and he was at Richmond when I was at UNC Wilmington. We were both assistants together, and he's a guy that uh, I've spent a good bit of time time with, um, you know, over the years. There's just a lot of people that 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 you can kind of talk to. Chris Holtman at Butler is another guy that I, I spend a good bit of time 
with and talk to on a regular basis. He and I, you know, share things and, and challenges. And, you know, it's easier because, you know, he's at Butler and I'm here. And you don't really play each other. You don't play the same kind of teams. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's probably a half a dozen guys like that that I've developed a good enough relationship with to call. And they call me on a, you know, couple week basis and we hash things out because sometimes as, as good as it is to talk to your assistants about everything, you know, and, and I've been fortunate to have several of my assistant coaches, you know, become division one head coaches mm-hmm. and get jobs. And I tell every one of them that there's nothing like it. You can be a great assistant coach, but there's nothing like the stress you take on and the things that it, it consume you when you move over six inches and become the head coach. And now you're not just worried about your position players and your recruits mm-hmm. and your, you know, whatever it is in your life, you've got to worry about the lives of everybody and, you know, the stresses that come with, you know, trying to do the best job you can for your players, but also your assistant coaches, their family. I mean, it's, it's just, it's very difficult. And uh, that's one of the things that, you know, about after year one of all of them becoming head coaches, they, they finally admit to it, you know, that, yeah, coach, you were right. It's, it's unbelievable. And, you start getting calls from them during the year like, okay. yeah, this is a lot different than I thought it was going to be and, and a little bit more challenging. But every one of them loves it. You love the opportunity to, to coach and compete. And, and uh, uh, there's, a, there's a million things that is great about what we do. You'd mentioned facilities and Clemson's coming off of a big renovation yeah. with Little John upgrade. Talk to us about the impact or what type of impact yeah, you're seeing I, now. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's – there's no question that it's a game changer, you know, and the first evidence of that for me is Mark Donnell. I don't think we would have gotten Mark Donnell uh, this year as a transfer, fifth year transfer from Michigan. Mm-hmm. If we had been in the old little John, I just don't think that we would have been able to turn his head enough to make him think that, Hey, this is a place that cares about basketball and, and wants to be good. And, you know, one of the great things I did was when I asked him, he and his parents, when they were leaving, at the end, my last meeting with them is like, what did you think? And, you know, they all said it's a lot better than we thought. It was just, you know, we didn't think it would be nearly this nice. And, you know, the, the reason facilities are really important are a couple. Number one is in a situation like that, when you bring a kid on campus, facilities don't necessarily get you the kid, but it's the first impression. And if the first impression is a good one, now they're willing and excited to learn more about what's my role here as a player. Where do you see me? Where's my, what's your vision of me? You know, because they're excited about what they've seen, they go see a great locker room. They go see tremendous weight room facility, a good practice court, a nice arena. Even if they've been told some negatives, you've put them back on their heels a little bit with, wow, this is better than I thought. This is, you know, this is a nice place. And now to listen to your vision, to see what the academics are like and some of the other things that then fall in place, you've gotten their attention. And so the visit has a much more, a much better chance of, of being a good one. The other thing, and, and maybe more importantly, is when you build a facility like this, you're sending a message to the guys on your team that Clemson does care about basketball. We want to be good. We're going to invest money. We're going to invest energy in this. And we care about you guys. We care about your experience. And we may be known as a football school, but we want you guys to have 
a great experience as well. And here's what we're doing to make sure that happens. And now your players begin to feel better about being a Clemson basketball player. They feel better about walking around campus. They feel better about when you have recruits and you have them spend time with recruits and their families that they're saying the things that you want them to say because they believe it to be true. And you're oftentimes your players are your best recruiters. And if your players are having a good experience and if your players enjoy Clemson and enjoy playing here and feel appreciated, then that message is going to come out when somebody comes to campus for a day or for a weekend in an official visit. And so I think that's what really has changed some things. And there's no question, not just with Mark Donnell, but with our recruitment of some kids in the 2018 class who've kind of only seen this building now. We've had some kids on campus, and it's it's made a difference in terms of their eyes opening to like, wow, this is, again, much better than I thought it would be. And so, uh, again, I think it's a it's a complete game changer for for Clemson basketball. And, you know, as much as anything, you don't want to give recruits another reason or a reason to not come, because if they you know, if they have reasons not to come, then they're not going to, you know, and if if facilities is one of them that sticks out right away, then it's it's sometimes tough if the kid's in a competitive recruiting situation for you to beat the hurdles of the other of the other teams. In addition to the facility upgrades, which is obviously helping as you're describing, what about the impact of the football team winning the national championship and how has that affected your recruiting ability yeah. and just the visibility it, for your program? Well, visibility, it's, it's, it's helped a good bit just because – and where it's helped the most is the further you get away from Clemson to recruit. So mm-hmm. you go down to Texas or you go down to Florida – or you go to the Northeast or you go to the Midwest, people have heard about Clemson because of, of you know, when you turn on ESPN in the fall and uh, they're showing Dabo and everybody doing all their things and winning big games and playing in for national championships and playing in semifinal playoffs. And ESPN is everywhere with Clemson and they're on campus interviewing players and, and coaches. And, uh, you know, it it it's that publicity piece that – open some people up to that this is a really cool place and it's a place where you can be successful. And so there's no question that that's had an impact and people that otherwise didn't know where Clemson was. Mm-hmm. If you'd asked me growing up where Clemson was, I couldn't have told you if it was North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, you when in Southern Indiana, you just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is starting to not become the case. It's starting to be a situation where because of the success of football, and the whole thing of running down the hill, I, the tradition of running down the hill, the impact of that is, I think, extraordinary. And it's hard to like it's unbelievably difficult to measure uh, what that experience is because people watch that on TV. And when you bring somebody to a game and they experience it, it's it's incredible almost every time you see it. And even for a guy like me that didn't grow up, you know, at all rooting for Clemson or football and now having been here for seven years you know, the hair on back of my neck still stands up when I watch it every time. And I think it's just one of the one of the traditions that Clemson football has that is unbelievably unique and, and again, is, a, is another separator. And, and it's something that uh, is super special. And so, uh, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Dabo and his staff. We have a great relationship and uh, spend a, a good bit of time together okay. and uh, have become, you know, good friends and family, friends, and the like, and, and uh, with a lot of those guys, uh, not just Dabo, but some of the assistant coaches. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we obviously talk shop some too in terms of try to learn things from those guys. And 
certainly, you know, they're calling over here when we have big basketball games that they want our best recruiting seats. You know what I mean? So yeah, I can see we're that. trying to do as That's much right. as we can to help those guys in their, their situations as well. You've also done a really good job of trying to embrace the history of Clemson basketball by doing reunion weekends for former players. How important is that for you to continue that? Well, it is. Uh, it's really important. And, uh, you know, Susan Ruark, um, my administrative assistant, is is does an unbelievable job of kind of coordinating all that along with a couple of my assistants that spend time. Tim Beret has been really good, uh, especially in years past when we were really trying to get the thing going uh, to a, a, to another level in terms of attracting some of the the better known superstar guys, you know, like a Dale Davis or an Eldon Campbell or. Larry Nance or some of those guys to try to get those guys to come back. And, and that's one of the real challenges uh, of the job is, you know, coaches haven't been here for long periods of time. They're always, you know, leaving. So sometimes it's more difficult to get players to come back when their coach or no one that they really know is kind of tightly wound with the program. And so for a good while there, Tim Beret was kind of the guy and still kind of is in terms of, being the guy that has relationships with a lot of those people. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's always a challenge. Uh, but we really want those guys to feel welcome. Uh, we want them to understand that we appreciate all they've done. We try to recognize as many of them as we can mm -hmm. in our new locker room facility with all ACC accolades and, you know, career leaders for points and rebounds and assists and steals and free throw percentage and three pointers made and three point percentage and, and uh, little John legends all around the concourse. Um, you know, I've tried to make sure that that those guys are recognized and appreciated. And uh, and I want our players to understand there is history and tradition of good players that have gone on to do great mm -hmm. things and achieve their dreams of playing in the NBA. And and uh, you know, the Elite Eight and Sweet Sixteen team. You know, there's pictures of those guys in our in our locker room area that you know. Uh, letting guys know that it can be done. And, uh, but it's, you know, it is a challenge. Um, unfortunately there aren't as many Clemson basketball players that kind of move back to Clemson. And, and a lot of the guys, you know, aren't from this area. A lot of them are from areas, you know, much further away. And so it, it becomes more difficult, but certainly we want those guys to be pride, take a great deal of pride and ownership in their program and, uh, recognize them. And, and we work hard at, you know, getting close to 100 alumni back every year. Ending things here today, Coach, just describe the impact of sports in your life, if you can wrap it up, and the life lessons that have been impactful. Yeah, you. you know, it's yeah, I can't measure it. Um, you know, as I mentioned way back, um, I mean, I was just a guy that loved, loved sports, all sports. I, I mean, I played a little bit of everything. You messed around with tennis, you know, and golf and you name it. I, I was if it if it was something where we were going to keep score and, and play, then I I wanted to do it. Because of that, I learned a lot of I've learned a lot of life lessons. You know everything about the whole teamwork and and what's involved with that and the discipline that, that you have to have to to be a part of uh, something, be successful at something that you got to really work at. Whether it's actual playing a sport or coaching, to to working with other people through a team and all those kinds of things. Obviously, perseverance through adversity. You know, and that's one of the things that the messages that we have kind of tried to develop a little bit in the last year with our program is we talk a lot about grit and growth and having a, a mindset of grit. And really where that came about is, 
There's a psychologist by the name of Angela Duckworth, who's also a professor at Penn, um, who wrote a great book. And I, I saw her first doing a, a TED Talk, and she talked about how grit is really a, a positive trait based on a person's passion or perseverance towards a long-term goal. And that the, a significant indicator of success in life isn't really just your talent or your smarts or your good looks, but really it's grit. It's this passion and perseverance to try to work through things towards a long-term goal. It's, it's viewing life as a marathon and not a sprint and really challenging yourself to stick to and and so we try to do that, teach that lesson to our players. And because uh, that's really what it takes to, to become a guy who gets his dream. And, and really, for me, it was kind of that. That's re- really, I'm living my dream. I'm coaching at an ACC level school. There was a lot of struggles along the way. There were sacrifices early on. There was perseverance. It was, a you know, it never for me was about money. I, you know, again, I worked for so many years in the business without making much but I didn't care because I was just doing what I loved and I was, you know, coaching and working with young people. And, and if you're p- passionate enough and you persevere and you have the right values and mindset where you do control your destiny. And when you do have adversity, you know, you don't have this fixed mindset where you, you understand that you can control it and you can change it. And, you know, you have to learn from every situation and we try to do that and push forward that you can achieve great things. And uh, it's really this perseverance, this this grit, that more times than not is what ultimately gets people to these top levels. Mm-hmm. And so trying to get guys to understand that, and hopefully we learned that lesson through last season, that you know, you know, we were very close to achieving big things this year and obviously lost a, a bunch of close games. But hopefully we're going to learn from that, our passion to – to get to where we want to go and our perseverance, this has only hardened us and we've learned lessons from it. It's going to make us better. And uh, so I'm a big believer in grit. You know, and you asked me a little bit the other day when we were talking, you know, almost like a message for our team or something that, that I'm thinking about. Yeah, for our next words year, of wisdom. What we're trying to do. And, and that's really the words of wisdom for anybody. But what I'm trying to do with our team this year is, you know, I, I the motto I've kind of come up with a little bit are championships. Championship teams are driven by the team. And I think we've got to do a little bit better job of making sure our players are the ones that are driving this team. And that that's, you know, and that's going to be my message, drive your team. You know, our guys, our Shelton Mitchells and Gabe DeVos and Dante Grantham, some guys that have are going to take on leadership roles of this year's team have really got to take ownership in that. And, you know, as much as, you know, I'm going to coach for a long time, these guys only have this short window to play college basketball. And you better take the ownership and you better drive it because the best teams, the teams that succeed at the highest levels are driven more by their team than they are by the coaches. And when a team is driven by the players and the players take ownership and responsibility and hold each other accountable and they feel a kinship in one another, that's when the team achieves and believes in each other. And that's when you're going to win more of these close games. And that's where we've got to be as a program. Um, and so that's kind of what our motto is going to be for this year. And hopefully we're going to make something special happen with it. Those are very impactful life lessons you just shared and also wonderful words of wisdom. So I can't thank you enough, Coach, for your time. And I greatly appreciate it. Good to be with you, my friend. 
One thing for certain after listening to Coach Brunell's story is that you can't underestimate that life is all about timing and connections, and you never know when connections that you've made will be impactful in your life, such as how he got connected with Coach Jerry Wainwright, and that was his true break into coaching from the longevity standpoint and that break going to UNC Wilmington as an assistant for Coach Wainwright. But then it was up to Coach Brunel to put in the effort, going through the grind, going through the grit, which ultimately led him to Clemson. And life's path is crazy, I'm telling you, because I remember distinctly when Coach Wainwright got the job at UNC Wilmington. I was at Fairleigh Dickinson at the time, and once I heard that Coach Wainwright got the job, I was all over it trying to get on his staff. I mean, I was making tons of calls to see if anyone could connect me with him. And remember... This was before cell phones. This was really not even email. This was picking up a landline and trying to connect with somebody. So it was very difficult. And I was having people, you know, make calls on my behalf, anything that I could do to try to get in contact with Coach Wainwright. And I was sending faxes all the time. And again, remember, this is 1994. So faxes, they were still legit. And I remember finally getting in touch with the sports information director at UNC Wilmington. I just wanted to make sure that Coach Wainwright was getting the information that I was sending him, you know, via fax. And he told me, he's like, yeah, Coach Wainwright's getting your faxes. And we've actually even talked about it. And we nominated you first team all fax team because of how many faxes I had been sending him. We both laughed. And, of course, I didn't get the job. And can you believe it? Coach Brunell is the one who get the who gets the job that year in 1994. So it's, again, it's just amazing that you never know how paths will cross. And you know, anyway, I know Clemson is a football school, but there's no doubt that Clemson can be successful in basketball. It has been done. It was done with Cliff Ellis, Rick Barnes, and Oliver Purnell. They all have had had their recent success. And just recently, there's been a ton of investment into facilities for the basketball team. So I'm really looking forward to Coach Brunel having success as well. Well, let's start bringing this episode to a close with the weekly words of wisdom. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Let's explore the weekly words of wisdom. Our quote this week stays within the basketball world and carries on what Coach Brunell was describing about ownership and just how powerful that can be for a team as it's seeking a championship and in that championship drive. And this quote comes from a legendary basketball coach, and that's Pat Summit, who unfortunately passed away in June of 2016. Now, no doubt she demanded that her players take ownership, and that's probably one of the reasons that she was so successful. And, you know, she's not just viewed as a great women's basketball coach. She's viewed as just a great basketball coach, period. So let's move into her quote, and she states, Responsibility equals accountability, equals ownership. A sense of ownership is the most powerful weapon a team or organization can have. And no doubt that the sky's the limit if everyone fully believes in a unified ownership front. Well, that finishes episode 24. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.